Hello, everyone. Hello, wherever you're listening to us in the world. It's lovely to have your feedback from various parts of the world. And I enjoy hearing your stories and your views on what we've spoken about so very much indeed. Welcome to the Lisa Burke Show, where I have guests from Luxembourg who live in Luxembourg from many other parts of the world. And that's the case today with all of my guests. In fact, to give you a little introduction to them, of course, as always, we have the fabulous Sasha Kyo, who is our resident newsreader from the Samstein Show and also joining us today Linda Shepherd, British by birth but uh, a true expert having lived in so many parts of the world where we're going to discuss the role of art in our lives and especially in education today. Also joining us I've got Lydia Cherneva who will talk about different types of intelligence and how it relates to mental health and also, just in the last few minutes, joining us is our fabulous Emma Baxley, who is our resident uh, TikTok expert, and you'll probably know her from her own fabulously famous TikTok in Luxembourg. But in fact, I've just learned 15 minutes ago that Emma is an expert in gifted education as well. Emma, tell us a little more. Yes, so I have a bachelor's in science um, from Florida State University on elementary education, and that was my passion before coming to Luxembourg and changing to social media. Um, and then while I was teaching, I developed a passion for gifted education and working with highly intellectual children, um, specifically those who are twice exceptional, so they have some sort of other disability and how to harness that along with their um, exceptional intelligence. I love the fact, and I must say it's so American, if I may say that, maybe that's derogatory, but it's, I, mean it po- <laughs> I mean it positively that you call them twice exceptional. Yes. I love that phrase. It's really, really warm and loving and caring. Yes. <laughs> Which I believe in in education and it's not always present in what I see. So we'll come to that. But as always, we're going to start with a look back at the news with Sasha. And I love reading your weekly notes, Sasha, and reading up on the stories that I may have missed out on. Some of them, of course, I've, I've been across, but uh, I'm going to dive straight into the one on uh, AI and chat GPT. Well, it's been such a huge topic. I know it's been around for a little bit. Yes. AI uh, bot. But this week, uh, every time I open a paper or look at any website, everyone is is typing in a question (laughs) and seeing what it comes up with. So um, just, you know, for people who may not have heard of it, Microsoft have developed this AI tool. And um, yes, it it's, it's striking fear into a lot of people, especially American universities, um, where, um, you know, there is talk of banning it, like on a lot of campuses, camp, American campuses have banned TikTok, because it's very difficult to tell the plagiarism at the moment. Yeah, there's so, a plagiarism button on it. Yes, exactly. Which is extraordinary. So you can't copy and paste. Uh, this this is very difficult. I'm sure they will develop a tool to detect whether it's be uh, your thesis or your essay has been written by this chatbot. It's really hard to know because every time you put in the same question, it can come out with a different answer. That's extraordinary too, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and a lot of people have been using it for fun as well. So the, the musician Nick Cave, yes. um, you know, he, he's a fan actually uh, sent in the lyrics uh, to, a, to a song. He'd said, please write me a song in the style of Nick Cave. And of course, he, he was down on it big time and said it was absolutely rubbish. Um, I suppose but, he has to be yeah, exactly. to protect himself. <laughs> and then I noticed even our own uh, Josh Island yes. did, did the same on Facebook and kind of was laughing, but it rhymed. It sounded, it did sound a little bit, I thought, in the style of, he'd probably hate me for saying that. But it's, I guess, something to be feared by many and embraced by even more. Yeah, I hope we can harness it for positive effect. Um, and uh, I'm sure it's going to run in parallel 
like so many other stories. At least I had. You've tried it. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have tried it. What did you ask it? Um, <clears throat> okay, if I'm being honest. <laughs> when I was preparing for um, the interview with Eureka Backus, Minister of Finance here in Luxembourg a few weeks ago, I wrote in, what would you ask Eureka Backus in Luxembourg? And it came up with some good questions. I mean, it had a knowledge of Luxembourg and what she does in Luxembourg. And its questions were not inappropriate. I mean, I didn't ask those questions, but um, but it, it that was just one example. I have asked it very specific examples. It has to be obviously a question to which you will have had the training knowledge inputted. So you can't ask it a completely random, very personalised individual question. But a general question, yeah, it will come up with answers that are not entirely you know, off kilter. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I know journalists are very, very concerned that uh, news is going to be taken over by it. Well, it can write articles. It can write articles, absolutely no problem. And very fast. (laughs) (laughs) And very cheaply. Do you know, actually, an interesting aside, I was working this week in Karlsruhe, uh, which was really fun on science communication. But the producer there, he was talking about his neighbour in France, who makes as it happens, fake websites in order to push up the the Google algorithm for another website. And anyhow, he often employs journalists to write articles for these fake websites um, at not a high cost, but now, of course, it can be free with this yes. resource. So for his work, ChatGPT is fabulous because he can just fill these pages of fake websites with articles that were always rather meaningless. But now a poor journalist doesn't have to write rubbish yeah, <laughs> for yeah. a minimal wage. It could have been an income, couldn't it? For, it for a it journalist. was a small income for students income, often as yeah. well. It was. But uh, we just have to diversify our skill set. Yes, absolutely. And it will never be able to write opinion pieces, will it? I don't know yet. Uh, yet. <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out in time. Uh, it won't know. I mean, it will not know whether it's wrong. No, exactly. So there will always need to be editing. Hopefully, yes. Uh, yeah. Hopefully. But, it, uh, you know, it has been, it's the hottest technology around um, yes, for is. many, yeah. many things. But we certainly need a human with a brain in order to figure out whether what it's saying is actually uh, coherent. Coherent, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So moving uh, more locally, some really sad stories this week, actually. An awful incident on a football pitch in esch sur alzette well, this one is a really, really, yes, horrible and, and quite strange because it's still not quite clear what happened. But on last Friday night, um, the uh, club at Esch-Alzette uh, was training and a man came uh, with two armed with two knives and uh, was shouting and wanted to attack, uh, not necessarily the players, but the the player, uh, sorry, not the players, the parents of the players and the coaches. So I don't know whether it was a, a grudge or something uh, from from before. He was a, a 27-year-old man. But uh, the they managed to overpower him. And this is where the story takes a very strange, which is great. So the players, none of the children were harmed, were never in danger. Um, but they overpowered him. And in this particular attack he dropped the knives and and he then himself was stabbed hit with a stone and and eventually killed of his uh, died of his wounds so i don't know whether this you know just was something that went out of control whether there was a personal we might not one the man who actually ended up killing him um has been um 
he, he's been he will be prosecuted for manslaughter. So uh, you know it's a it's a horrible. I mean, imagine those children and how frightening it must have been. Let alone the fact that it's it's ended up with you know one person dead. It's it's really sad really story, and it's I, I only raise it um, because it's. Not a common story in Luxembourg. Absolutely Thank not. Thank goodness. No, absolutely not. It wouldn't uh, occur to you, would you, at a football training that something like this would happen? For children, no. It's certainly not something you, you ever dream of happening and it's no. truly awful. So a very sad story there. Now, moving to an important story for local people and the frontalier, the cross-border workers, home working. And this is an ongoing story since COVID because the rights of Luxembourgish people are not the same as those who come in from France or Belgium or Germany. And it leads to frustration in the workforce. Yes, absolutely. And and particularly that the, the people coming from Germany have fewer... Uh, days or have the right to work fewer days from home than than uh, yeah people as you say living in Luxembourg but also people living in Belgium and in France. I mean at the moment it's 19 days a year, and uh, they want to raise it to two days a week. Um, so this is ongoing. I, from what we understood this week, the government is absolutely trying to support those workers and trying to encourage people to work in Luxembourg. You know, we actually have a skills shortage here. Um, so they are negotiating and I think it's all to do with uh, social contributions so that it is accepted um, in Germany as well as um, here and it's a tax as well. So they said they will hopefully have a um, something in place by June. It is a very complex matter, I know, because you're dealing with... Uh uh, four different countries, basically, and their social security setup: uh, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Germany. So I hope they do come to some agreement because it it feels very unfair that those travelling the most from the uh, over across the border uh, have to work more in Luxembourg. Have to work more than people yeah. living here. Yeah, absolutely, it, it feels very wrong, and I think it also includes their days off. Those nineteen days are however many days. It includes their travel abroad for work. Yes. Exactly. Which is really unfair, I feel. Now, the future of the Luxembourg language. Yes, so uh, this is a, always a, an ongoing discussion. Um, you know, obviously, we've all, all, all of us who've moved here have been very much encouraged to learn Luxembourgish and in order to get the Luxembourgish citizenship, um, you know, you do need to pass a certain level of Luxembourgish. But in addition, um, Luxembourgish is evolving and um, like with the French language there are people who want it just to stay as it is. Um, That's the motto of the country isn't it? We are what we are. Absolutely. (laughs) And there are those that say but we have to you know we have to embrace all the other terms that have come in. So little things like I I picked up because I speak German so in Luxembourgish you say for to have breakfast, you say Kaffee trinken, which is to drink coffee, but it's not, it's to have breakfast. So a lot of Luxembourgers actually say the German word Frühstücken, which is to have breakfast, have breakfast, which <laughs> could also include something other than just a coffee. Uh, you might drink tea or, or have a croissant, who knows. Um, and so I, I love this as a, as, a, as a discussion, you know, should we, should this go in the Luxembourg online dictionary, the word Frühstücken, or do we just stick to Drinking a cup of coffee. But I was speaking word. to a Luxembourgish person who said to me, um, it even evolves which side of the country you are. So the German side, which you live towards, yes. uh, will have the German words in their language, Luxembourgish language, and the French side will incorporate more French words. So it varies depending on which border you're next to. Yes. 
But isn't that nice? It's lovely. It's lovely. It's, I think it's nice. And then you learn sort of certain things like, I don't know, we meet a young Luxembourger, you're not going to say moyen. You, you know, salut is the, is the word which is very much the, the French kind of high, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I think that's lovely. But, you know, I'm no expert in the Luxembourgish language. I have nothing to do with trying to keep it. And obviously protecting the language maybe is also very important because it's only been recognised as an official language really quite recently. Yes, and as a written language, I believe the teachers teaching it now were not taught how to write it how themselves write, yes. at school. Um, but the article, which is on RTL today, um, it's really interesting because it's not just about the future of the Luxembourgish language. It is more intrinsically what makes a Luxembourgish person. And of course, we all know it's election year and people becoming Luxembourg citizens have to have lived here five years and pass a certain level of Luxembourgish as the language, which many of us haven't done. Uh, sadly, <laughs> I confess, uh, I wish I could. Uh, haven't yet. <laughs> um, but it's a huge debate. It's a huge debate because the, the expats bring in so much tax money here, but we're not allowed to vote because of our, you know. Well, we are of- allowed to vote, but you just have to st- do certain things. We have to like, pass the language test. pass the language test. That's exactly. That's, or live here for 20 that's years. That's the barrier. <laughs> it's the language test that, yeah, I mean, people working hard don't have a lot of free time. No, I But um, anyway. You can vote in local elections. I they know, go. but they don't have the same impact. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> uh, that, that is a conversation I will have yes. down the line this year. Uh, it's it's on my radar. I've got them coming up, booked in March. So keep tuned for that and write in your questions as well. Um, now, I want to move on to the Oscar nominations because, of course, uh, our wonderful Luxembourgish actress star Vicky Kreitz um, was uh, nominated for all sorts of things uh, last year, of course, Best Non-English Film. And we were hoping that Corsage would have a nomination, but there's been a bit of a scandal with her co-star. Yes, there has. And so, yes, as you say, it was nominated for the BAFTAs, for example. And I think the expectation was huge for it to be yes. um, uh, nominated for the uh, Best Non-English uh, category at the Oscars. However, her co-star has been, uh, Florian Teichtmeister, has been caught watching child pornography and will be prosecuted. And I think they believe that that is a, a very good reason that it, it didn't wasn't nominated. Yes. However, there is another film that was nominated for Best Short, um, a, a, a made by a Luxembourgish director, Cyrus Neshvad. And, um, Called so, The Red but, Suitcase. Yes. And, you know, it was only filmed uh, over a period, I think, of five to six days at Findlay Airport. So it's, um, yeah. Wow. It's a, it, looks, it looks really nice. I watched the preview. And um, so that has been nominated. So Luxembourgish film will be represented at the Oscars. It's a shame about Corsage, but of course that's a a really serious claim against her co-star. Now, our final story. Well, no, not our final story. I want to touch on the story of the sauce. (laughs) Oh, isn't it brilliant? Brilliant story. I don't know if you've heard this story, but uh, it's really funny. So this is a man who was lost at sea uh, for 24 days. So he came from the Caribbean island of Dominica, was at sea. And all he had was a bottle of ketchup, some stock cubes, and there was a third thing, um, hang on, and some garlic powder. Garlic powder, yeah. He survived for 24 days and he puts it down to the ketchup. Um, so, <laughs> isn't that amazing? Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And a quote from him, it was very rough. I don't know how I'm alive today, but I am alive and I'm grateful for that. Um, yeah, rescued by the Colombian Navy. Yes, isn't it sweet? It's a wonderful story. But now moving 
into the final story that we'll touch on. It's about Julian Sands. Who I understand you met? Yes, I, I worked with him. I, I played his wife in a film, uh, filmed here in Luxembourg a few years ago. And um, yeah, I know he loves climbing mountains and he gave me one of his books that he read on Kilimanjaro. And It's yeah. really sad. So he, he loves mountains. He's a very keen hiker. Um, Hugely comes keen. Comes from Yorkshire, yeah. obviously, mountains and has dis- we has has disappeared mm. disappeared a while ago and you know has been missing now for so long that I think there is very little hope um he went hiking in the mountains outside Los Angeles I yeah. think mountain San Antonio which is the highest mountain and they've had very freak storms uh, with a lot of uh, snow so there have been huge rescue missions um, even from the UK they've sent over search dogs and everything oh really Uh, yeah so they've sent drones everything I think they've you know there has been a lot of search so there's not much hope Um, and Julian Sands is one of those British actors I suppose especially um, that for my kind of generation from Room of the View is back in 1985 uh, that you kind of feel you know very well. I mean, despite making a big career in in Hollywood rather than in Europe so much. But I'm interested that he made a film in Luxembourg. I didn't know this. The Toy Gun. Yeah, Uh it was a Toy Gun a few years ago. I think he just picks up projects as they come and he's quite an eccentric person um, and he just loves that space of them. He's very much in himself. You can see that when he's working, he just keeps himself very very contained and he might be one of one of those people you may have taught Emma a long time ago with the double giftedness. He, he, he I think there's something about him that's uh, other, um, and and I think that's why he loves the mountains. He likes his own time as well and his own headspace. That's really sad. It's very yeah. sad. Yeah, he's got two daughters as well two, yeah. and a son. Yeah, so very sad. Well, well, there's still a little bit of hope because given that story about the man who was rescued on ketchup Absolutely. and garlic powder, I haven't given up hope yet. Might be in a cave somewhere. Who knows what's in that backpack? <laughs> Let's hope. I, I, I do hope, but I just don't know how one goes around mountains trying to find somebody, you know, where do you begin when you don't know somebody's track? Route. I always really admire mountain rescue people because they they're all volunteers, aren't they? And they sort of they get the call and off they go with, in the with worst of conditions. In the worst conditions. Yeah, exactly. it's extraordinary. Well, now um, I don't know why I can close my computer on that note, but we're now going to move on to our other guests. Uh, thank you, as always, Sasha, for that fabulous little uh, nugget of news from the week that's just gone. Pleasure. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, moving on to my other guests to introduce Linda Shepherd. Linda's British by birth, graduated from Cambridge in art, history and education with a burning desire to travel the world and dedicate her time to exploring the art of different cultures, travelling with her paint box and teaching in many different educational establishments. You founded the Relative Arts Centre in Dubai in 1994 and has had several solo international exhibitions as a professional watercolourist. You have spent 30 years living as an expat, living in the Middle East, of course, Texas, New Zealand, and now Luxembourg, where you arrived in 2019. And here you've been teaching art full time for the Ministry of Education, along with giving workshops. And you are a full advocate of art as part of our education and our life. Well, I always have been. um, And I am passionate about my subject. And most of the countries that I visited... um, and when I've been involved in different curricula and syllabi to teach, the sad thing is every single government in every country is pushing art sideways because art now is a subject that doesn't get you 
the highest salary, the best job. It's not competitive. Now they think that education is not necessarily holistic anymore. That's not the primary thing, which is so sad because the ancient philosophers said we have to live in harmony with people and our surroundings and our environment. And they rated the arts and art itself very highly, the visual arts. Now you see... Um, less time being given to timetables in schools. Less time and for art being given to timetables. Yeah. Yes, exactly, art. And it, it's very difficult as a teacher sometimes to get a budget for the art department. And there seems to be this, oh, it's just art. And and it's so sad. And um, just on a lighter note, I remember, you know, when the film Mr and Mrs Smith came out and they finally discovered that they're both undercover agents and they're in the car and she said... So you're not really an art architect, are you? And he said, no, I studied art history. <laughs> and Angelina Jilly says, in a very derogatory way, oh, art. And he, Brad Pitt says, art history, it's reputable. <laughs> and this is what I find I'm fighting the whole time. Well, let's go back to that story, because in fact, Brad Pitt used art as therapy for himself post-divorce from that lady. Absolutely spot on. Many, many people use art, sometimes knowingly and perhaps not knowingly, um, Winston Churchill suffered from the black dogs. He said, happy are the painters. He recommended to all his friends, you must paint. He, he wasn't very good at the beginning, but he used it as therapy. And art therapy is now a three-year degree. And you can do colour therapy as well. And Art is a massive subject and it deserves far more recognition and importance than it's currently getting. Now we hear Sunak in, um, Rishi Sunak saying, we have to study maths. But one of the things is about art is they, th they may think it's just about creating visual objects, whatever medium you use. But what we should be thinking about is art trains the brain in a certain way. Art gives the brain elasticity. We, as creative people, creative intelligence, using certain parts of our brain, this is unique. And the topic you were talking about this morning, this Microsoft app, um, anybody can make something, put it on the web, and you will get people copying it. Um, people can modify something. But what is original thought? Original thought is very special. And it is only when we use our creative areas of our brain that we encourage creative, original thinking. And that's what we need more of. Exactly in this world. Yes. Inventors are creative thinkers. And so to, to push art aside in the education system for me, I think is very, very wrong and very short-sighted. So let's think about the life of an artist then. You're an artist yourself. Is it enough to just be an artist? Can you sustain your life just being an artist? Or do most artists also have to have a sideline job, if not their primary job, an art on the side? There's only a few people that we know of who make it to the great realms of great wealth in their lifetime as an artist. Yes, in fact, Picasso was the first person to become a millionaire before he died. You have to die, if your, <laughs> literally, if your art is valuable. Um, it depends on what level you're, you're saying, is it enough? 
in terms of feeding the soul and feeling a whole person. I feeding would, your family. I mean, monetarily, you have to survive. Yes. If you are thinking of the financial aspect, most artists would say they have to have a second job to pay the bills. And also, you know, in the olden days, you would have a sponsor. But then you were an artist basically enslaved by the Pope or the Vatican or some aristocrat who wanted his rather overweight wife painted in a <laughs> painting, <laughs> you know, for posterity. So being an artist as a free agent and being able to survive is very, very difficult, very, very rare. Uh, this is true. But as I tell a lot of my students, don't think of art as just painting on canvas or drawing on paper or doing pottery or photography. There are artists who design record labels, who do CDs. There are artists, and I'd have loved to have done this. Um, you can take a course in Christie's and you can go into art fraud. You can actually study law with them and actually chase people who forge art. That's extremely interesting. And it links with the, the story, going back to our story of the, the morning chat GPT again, the forgery yeah. of art. It's, it's, that's really, really interesting. In fact. Yes, I'd, I'd have loved to have done that. You can be an art restorer. In fact, I met a Luxembourg lady here who does uh, restore for the uh, Museum of um, History and Art. Fascinating, highly trained. Um, but you have to have a blend of chemistry as well as art for that. When you look at the careers that are available for artists, and I do talk to to the students about this, please don't let your parents say, don't do art because, you know, you have to survive and struggle in a garret, <laughs> not eating, freezing cold. No, there are, there are jobs that apply art, hundreds of jobs. And so... I often find myself being a careers teacher, not just an art teacher, trying to encourage them and understand how art is applied. And I think when I spoke to you before, Lisa, I said to you, it's not the question of, you know, is art, wor art worth it? What is art? What are we doing? The question is, what is not art? Yes. And actually, you said, what is the earth without art? Yes. Because art resides in the word earth. Yes. Um, but I just wanted to, to circle back a little bit to... Um, Turner because he was quite a clever painter. He did what was needed of him at the time, but also he painted for himself. So tell us a bit about his story. He was um, quite the businessman. And during his lifetime, he, like many artists, were only accepted by high society and felt that they had made it and could sell their work and survive if they were exhibited at the Royal Academy. But the rules of the Royal Academy in those days, you know, in the um, late 1700s, early 1800s, was extremely strict. And he was a true artist in his soul. And what he would do in his studio was he would do these experimental pieces that he didn't actually want to show anybody. He would show his friends but he would not ever exhibit them. But but what we now value him for is, yes, technically, his Royal Academy paintings are, are, are wonderful and technically, you know, awesome. But he actually began way before the Impressionists started a form of atmospheric art that was very ab abstract. And he was doing this in his studio. And he has hundreds and hundreds of sketchbooks that you can actually go and see in the British Museum in London. And these are the things that people value Turner for. And interestingly, he came to Luxembourg twice on two trips, and he would stuff these sketchbooks in his pocket and he was walking around. And I do do some art workshops for the British Luxembourg Society. And right now, 
I am showing them how to create Turner's effects. And we are producing a little set of um, pastels and watercolours and gouache paintings of the views that Turner did when he visited Luxembourg. That's beautiful. Now, um, at the time when Turner was uh, presenting his work at the Royal Academy, were women allowed to present their work? Very few. No. I mean, it was very... No. And in, fa- <laughs> and in fact, if, if you look at history of art, there are very f- few... Well, prior to, say, World War Two, there are very few female artists. The Impressionists, there's only one, Bertha Morisot. Very few female artists that we know of or, we, who are allowed to yes, practice. Yes, it was... It, like, you know, women should, on a Sunday, pick flowers, um, they can embroider, they can play the piano, and they can do a little bit of painting. And that was acceptable <laughs> by men <laughs> and by society, if if this was a kind of like sun, Sunday activity for women. If women wanted to become um, professional artists, and in fact, we now know um, through some letters that have been recently discovered that Rodin, the, the sculptor Rodin, it was his student and, and, and the female student that he actually um, himself sculpted and had an affair with. She was the real force behind his work, but she doesn't get recognised. And, and this What's her name? Okay, <laughs> we will find the name and put it in. <laughs> it's fine. But, but, but the point is, we don't know her name. I mean, that's part of the story. Why do we not know her name? Well, exactly. It's, exactly. We know Rodin, but we don't know her name. Exactly. And of course, this is only sort of fairly recent research that's come along. But f- females now, that there are... I went to um, the Chateau in Borglinster, where they have some lovely art studios, and I met a, a girl there who's, who said to me, she said, you know, I've been given this space. I have a son at school. I have a husband. And I'm trying to make it as an artist and have an exhibition Actually, at the time, COVID had hit, so that was a problem. And she said, but my husband doesn't take this work seriously. He thinks it's just fun and games, and this is not serious work. So the person who should be her best supporter isn't giving her the encouragement she needs. Yes, it was sad. And And um, female artists now, Tracy Ehrman, and certain artists that are winning the Turner Prize, and now it's different. Um, But I have to say, just like some female authors, a lot of um, women who paint will change their signature and use a pseudonym. I painted in the Middle East, where women are second-class citizens. I was in Dubai, and I, I, a lot of people didn't know that I was female. Yeah. Um, and it was the way I did my signature. But I actually succeeded very well in Dubai. Um, uh, and I think that we also have to make sure that And it goes along with the whole thing about what art is. Most men in history who became artists had income of their own. They would be like Byron painted. Um, You had people in the Victorian times, men who had, because of the Industrial Revolution, had families who were able to provide them with income to indulge Mm -hmm. in this pastime. And again, we use the word pastime. It's not a serious activity. Well, this conversation is hopefully changing that mindset because, of course, it's used in so many other realms for mental health. Mm -hmm. And we're going to move on to you now, Lydia, because uh, just to give a little introduction to you, Lydia Cherneva, a graduate from Oxford University, where you studied the design and implementation of evidence-based behavioural interventions through the lifespan. 
it's a long sentence. <laughs> and you've gone on to study cognitive behaviour therapy, mindfulness and positive thinking. And you're now completing your master's degree in psychology with the University of Glasgow. And alongside that, you volunteer here in Luxembourg, helping young adults, children and families, improving their mental health and overall well-being. So welcome, Lydia. Thank you. Now, you have a really interesting story. You moved from Bulgaria to Cyprus when you were young and something happened to you where you were basically told you weren't intelligent. Yes, that's correct. Um, I think I will start back in Bulgaria because this is where my heart is. (laughs) I am lucky because I'm part of a family which is very supportive and they believe in education. And they always taught me, you have to learn to love, not because you have to learn. So you learn because you enjoy learning. And they have showed me all these strategies to like to learn. And it was such a big pleasure when I I sit with my grandfather, rest in peace, (laughs) and he reads with me a book and a story and says to me, what do you understand about the story? It's your perspective. It's what you think about it. And it was such a nice um, way I was brought up up until age of 16. And I have really dear memories about that. And I'm really grateful for the support of my family and the way they told me about education. Then when I was 16, about 16, my family decided to move. You know, they found a really good job and they wanted to move to Cyprus. Now, this is where my story starts a little bit more rough. (laughs) Because as a person who knew only hello, how are you and goodbye, (laughs) had to go to British high school. And that was a huge challenge. Um, So I entered the high school. um, I tried my best, but let's face it, I'm in A-levels for two years. You have to learn English and do A-levels and pray that you get accepted to university. It was not really that much possible. So based on my English capabilities and basically failing correct or right tests because they were made in this way. Problem-solving tests like, you know, A-levels, they are pretty much like yes or no. Like Uh, most tests. Yes, most tests. (laughs) Uh, They don't really um, actually judge you based on your creativity. Going back to what Linda says, I mean, they don't incorporate other types of intelligence you might have. And especially this barrier with the English was a huge barrier for me. And I was told by many people who I really, really respected that I I cannot go to university. I'm not intelligent enough. And <laughs> yeah, I should better just think about something else like a cleaning job or <laughs> something. <laughs> and I was like, OK, but I really want to learn. I love learning. I mean, what I'm taught in Bulgaria and my family told me is to love learning. So I was very lucky because there was this one person that believed in me. There is this one person who who came across it as academic leader back then in the school. She came across to me and my parents. And that person said, hey, guys, I mean, she really wants, but she needs a different approach. She does need something out of the box. She needs to go through a different system to achieve what she wants. So she started to talk to my parents and to me. She made this really nice baby steps program, <laughs> really. And literally, I managed to pass the A-levels um, with the lowest, lowest, uh, like, mark, let's say. And afterwards, what we have found with her, I don't know if you know, guys, foundation degrees in the UK. Mm-hmm. They are meant for people who their English is not too good or they haven't achieved so well at uh, school. 
So we found her this kind of foundation degree and we applied and I went to UK. This is all thanks to the fact that my parents believed in her. She believed in me <laughs> and they worked. We all worked together. I worked hard. My parents were cooperative and the teacher really was there for me. So you're an example of where you've had the support of your family and a great teacher who's come and looked at you without the are you passing the exam type exactly. of mindset. So then talk to us about this work that you're really interested in, which is the theories of intelligence. And I know you have a particular favourite who is Howard Gardner and his colleagues. Absolutely. I mean, I really like this theory because it makes me feel uh, very optimistic about human beings. Why I like it is an old theory, but I like it because it talks about multiple intelligences. Seven intelligences. Seven, multiple seven intelligences. Yes, exactly. So this theory is really uh, amazing because it doesn't look at you if you're only problem solving or how is your IQ. It looks at you as a complex individual. It says that anybody can be good at something. So there are seven. There are one which is about logical, mathematical. And this is about how good you are in problem solving, like um, mathematical tasks. So usually those kind of people will be mathematicians or architect or somebody who is really good with this kind of um, mathematical equations. But then you have linguistic and linguistic as people who are really good with uh, the sounds and people who can speak really well, um, like you, Lisa, who will lead the show. Well, no, I don't think I am a good linguist. I'm only a good linguist in English. Yeah. <laughs> Still counts. <laughs> or musical, so people who are really like good in creating music. You know, those who are musicians, I mean, we should not undermine them as the creative people with art because they are good in what they do. Or um, So you have many types of this. What, what are the others? I'm, I'm interested to know yeah. the others. Spatial is one of them. Yes, yeah, spatial is a really nice one as well. This is um, the way we see the three-dimensional world around us. And, you know, it's usually for sculptors, constructors. Um, and we have also body kinesthetic, which is about how your body moves. So this usually, I think it's for people who are gymnasts or sportists or people who are really good in movement. And you can do whatever they like in movement, like ice skaters, um, which I I love. (laughs) And another thing he talks about is interpersonal and intrapersonal intelligence. Exactly. Which comes to the fore in our lives and through business as well. We hear about all of this EQ, IQ uh, differences as well, emotional intelligence, for instance. So what's intra and inter? Mm-hmm. personal intelligence um, so the interpersonal is for um, the people how you connect with people your relationships and whether you understand people's feelings desires and how you react on them the intrapersonal is the things within you so it's your emotions it's your awareness of your emotions your management of emotions and also whether you know your strengths and weaknesses we're not really taught much about intrapersonal <laughs> intelligence at school. Emma, I'm going to bring you in here. So tell us a little bit about your background then in the States before you moved to Luxembourg. Yes. So um, I got my degree at Florida State um, in elementary education. And actually, I did my student teaching. You do a whole semester um, within a classroom. You don't take any classes yourself. Um, And I did that in Valencia, Spain. So I was able to come here and work in an IB school, uh, here being Europe, (laughs) Um, and work in an international baccalaureate school. And then when I got back to the States, I assumed a teaching role and started to kind of 
figure out what exactly my role would be. You know, you have all sorts of grade levels. I obviously was certified kindergarten through sixth grade, which I think it's a little bit different the way they do things here. But in the States, you know, that's about five years old, five, six until um, 11, 12 kind of age range. And I knew that I really liked the middle ground of students. So eight to 10 was kind of like my soft spot. It's also a huge testing year in the States. So something they do very differently is they have a lot of standardized testing, um, which speaks a lot to what you were speaking about, about intelligences, because you have a lot of students who are exceptionally um, abled, you know, abled, and, and they do things all the time in the classroom and they can perform very well. And then they get test anxiety and they fail tests and you know, on paper, it looks like they can't do X, Y, Z or whatever they're qu- they're being tested on. And you're already setting up inside yourself uh, right. anxiety and anxiety. self-esteem issues. Exactly. A lot of uh, a lot of students who are, you know, they move, they go on to do exceptional things and they fail. My my sister's boyfriend is a great example. He failed these standardized tests moving forward. And now he's a VP at a bank. So he's you know, it's it's very for him to talk about it, it's degrading because he's, you know, that experience has kind of traumatized him and he's had to work through a lot of things to get past it. So my passion is working with students and especially those who on paper look exceptionally intelligent, but they have something that's holding them back. So we call it twice exceptional, um, dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, some students on the spectrum of autism, um, students who are ADD and ADHD. So my personal background was I was identified as a gifted student growing up. However, I was exceptionally ADD. Like I could not focus on anything. I didn't care about school. I could do everything if you showed it to me once, but I just didn't care. And like finding that, sorry, I keep hitting this, that um, intrinsic motivation was really difficult for me. And so my mom did a lot of work with me. I saw a lot of specialists and we just couldn't get to the point where like I was excited about school. I didn't want to go. I didn't care, but I could do all the things that they needed me to do. So now that I've done a lot of studying and research on gifted children, and especially those twice exceptional, I can see what I was lacking in education as a child and how you can harness that with students today. What was the trigger for you to get you uh, involved, to go back to wanting to learn? So when we moved to Seattle, we moved a lot like my, with my now husband, but when we were dating, we were moving a lot. And I had my teaching certificate in Florida. So in the States, you have various teaching certificates for each state. So I was not able to work in a public school when we were moving. So I was applying at all these private schools. And when we moved to Seattle, I started working at a, a school for gifted children and sitting in that school and like watching how I was a, an associate teacher at the time because I didn't have a master's degree. And so I'm, I'm sitting in these classrooms and I'm watching these students learn and I'm just seeing them struggle. And I'm, I'm thinking back to my own life, right? Like I was gifted, but I couldn't do these things and I didn't care to do these things or people didn't show me how to do them correctly. And I'm seeing it happen. And it kind of all clicked together for me that like, this is where my passion lies. Like with these students who are on paper, perfect and all around and well-rounded, but they need extra support in other realms. But how do you do that? How do you get into their brains to do that? A lot of time and every student is different. So like, it's not a one size fits all strategy. It's very individualized. So I had, you know, I had one, 
um, student who was dysgraphic and he loved using technology. That's where he excelled and it was great because things could be read to him. He could do um, voice dictation for his papers or his assignments or whatever. But then I had another student who often was lumped with him because she was also dysgraphic. That didn't work for her. And so we kind of had to adjust our strategy based on the student. and So it really requires one-on-one care. Absolutely. Which is uh, very expensive and you have to be lucky. Uh, I mean, you have to be a family who can either afford it or just lucky to have a good teacher who can spot that. Well, and parental support as well. Like, mm. you have to have parents that are willing to advocate for their student, even if they don't know. Like, even if... Because a lot of times the parents are unsure. Like, I'm looking at my student. I'm not quite sure how to help them because I didn't struggle with this myself. I don't know anyone who hasn't struggled with this. And just having the voice to be able to speak up and say, I'm not sure what's going on, but I need extra help. But this doesn't exist in Luxembourg, this help. It's very, yeah. When we moved here in February, I was was very interested in continuing my path with gifted education. And there is nothing (laughs) in the whole country about uh, no gifted programs, no gifted pullout. There's no... Um, special school, so to speak. They just are... And I don't mean even about the people on the gifted range. I mean the people who need the support for the all of the other, as you call them, doubly gifted children yeah. who, who have the, um, the ADD, ADHD or somewhere on the autism spectrum or mm-hmm. dyspraxia, etc., etc. So this, you know... These things do exist here in Luxembourg as they exist everywhere yeah, in the world. And we don't have the specialist teachers here to to help this. And it's and it's hard to pinpoint exactly who to bring in because, you know, everybody specializes in in something different. Right. So intellectual ability is is mm. so important. And I was thinking a lot about what you said with interpersonal, yeah. um, because there you think about like <laughs> Everybody in school had a class clown, right? There's someone who's like always the loudest person in the room. Maybe they didn't have the best grades or whatever, but they're a relationship person. And my husband is very much like that. He's so good at relationship. But sometimes the class clown developed those skills because they weren't coping with whatever task was set in front of them. They couldn't do that for whatever reason. Right. And it may not have been an inability in themselves. It was just the way they were being taught. But I think, Linda, you have some experience of people who are not fulfilling the, um, you know, the ticks on the box for various tests. But in art, they flourish. They do. um, And it's true. Um, We... We don't understand the different intelligences that we have, and maybe there's even more than we know about today. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a huge number of students in my art classes. Um, I, I'm due to retire in two days, actually. Oh, well, <laughs> congratulations well, in advance. <laughs> well, sort of. I mean, Luxembourg has a rule that beyond a certain age, you can't work in the public education sector anymore, even though you have a lot to offer still. That's, uh, yes. that's terrible, actually. Well, uh, they're putting pension ages up. Why shouldn't they put their work cut-off ages up? What do we do with the gap in between? Well, that brings us back to the conversation we had last week with Cindy (laughs) Gallup, who was saying that um, people, as you've said, love to work, love to do their work. You clearly are very passionate about what you do. And it's not fair that that's cut off as you're kind of becoming more and more uh, knowledgeable. I mean, you don't lose your knowledge as you age, you gain knowledge as you age. Yes, I think so. It's most of us. <laughs> but to go back to the children in the art room, yes, um, the one thing about art is that it really is good for building self-esteem. And there's no right or wrong in art. Well, this brings me to the reason that I studied sciences and I didn't pursue uh 
humanities subjects or anything that could be judged by another person. Because I thought if I write an essay, if I do art, I mean, I love music as well. Any of those things, another person, of course, there are certain things, you know, you need to learn a few facts like art history or, or music, etc. theory. Um, but I'm talking about the creative part of these subjects. It's somebody else marking my work. And who's to say? How, how do you mark art? <laughs> well, that's interesting. Having taught many different uh, curricula, each, say the IB, which I rate highly, I think it's one of the best, they do actually go through the criteria for how you award marks. It could be that you have set a particular task. You, you base one mark on have they answered that task? But I have a problem with that as an art teacher because in art, it's a journey. It's not, this is what you do, this is the end result. Although I have to say, the Luxembourgish art curriculum is, is more like that. Um, I have seen a teacher give, who, who's teaching the Luxembourgish system, give 16 marks. You applied that paint in the correct colour. And we must say that 16 out of 60, which is often the marking score yeah, here in Luxembourg. Yeah, but, you know, these are... 16 individual marks on a painting as specific as uh, were you neat in the way you use the glue? <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I, I'm horrified by that because, because as I say to my classes and, and anybody who's doing art with me, even if it's in my studio, I say it's a journey. It's a process. You just go with the flow and you are thinking out of the box. You are problem solving the whole time. Do not worry about the end result. It's mm -hmm. the actual experience that counts. And um, we do have so many different forms of art. We have abstract art. We have expressionist art. We have realism. Um, and so in a way, each project, each piece of artwork that you do relates to different sets of criteria, if we're being honest. But, you know, young children, they don't care. They have no, they're not self-conscious. So little children, as Picasso said, are the best artists in the world. They just go for it and they enjoy the process. And that's why their art is so wonderful, because it's so spontaneous. Well, you reminded me of a fabulous story that Ken Robinson had said. <laughs> God bless Ken Robinson, a brilliant educator. And if you haven't watched his TED Talks, go and watch Ken Robinson. He's just amazing. But yes. I mean, it literally brings tears to your eyes, this yes. story about a young primary school girl. Do you want to tell us yes, the story? Yes, um, it is a true story there was a young girl who had some attention deficit problems and um, during the she was at primary school and during this particular lesson she had her head down and she was really focused and she was working for a long time which was very unusual for her so the teacher wandered up and was trying to see what she was doing she wasn't doing the actual class she was supposed to be doing but she was drawing and the teacher said what are you drawing let's call her Laura so Laura did not show her. She said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, that's very interesting, sort of using her logical left side of the brain. She said, well, that's very interesting. But, you know, Laura, nobody knows what God looks like. And Laura looks up and she said, they will in a minute. Oh, <laughs> which is so lovely. It's such a lovely childhood mindset. And on that, um, going back to your work, Lydia, um, thinking about the intra and interpersonal intelligence, mm -hmm. but particularly intra, 
personal, which is about our, how we regulate our own emotions. And sadly, and giving huge guilt to us mothers in the room, um, <laughs> everything starts when we're in the womb of our mother, it says here, the research yes. uh, from, which is, it's really scary. Because <laughs> we don't want to be blamed for everything, you know. But you have this lovely comeback saying, it's okay if that was all cocked up for whatever reason, because we don't know what we're doing when we're mothers. I'm just talking about myself here in the room. <laughs> <laughs> neuroplasticity. We're saved by neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Please tell us how we can be saved. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, uh, indeed. It starts everything when you are very young and uh, especially before you're born because during pregnancy you do communicate with your child in one way or another. So, <laughs> no, it is a research that shows that actually it is happening. But no worries because... <laughs> The guilt, the guilt. (laughs) The first stages of life are very important, early years as well. But I understand that not everybody have had the opportunity to have those. Some people have lived in very poor households or somebody have lived in different situations, broken households, so so far, so forth. So it's not all stopping there. We can all develop because of this neuroplasticity, because our brain can change, can rewire itself, can get back to it. And we can learn how to be emotionally intelligence we can learn how to manage our feelings and this intrapersonal uh, feelings which is awareness of your own emotions um, and management of them and you can do this anyone can do it so no worries Brit (laughs) it's not all to mothers it's also to schools I think and to the friendships you're surrounded with everything matters in your life not only your parents and especially schools I must say here we speak a lot about schools I think emotional intelligence is super important in fact, this is part of my dissertation today nowadays as well. I'm speaking about emotional intelligence in schools and how it can be improved and social emotional um, connections. Well, it's so important because just trying to bring the conversation together. You know, if you're dealing with doubly gifted children, um, you're dealing with people who don't fit the, the mould of whatever education is meant to be in that specific region in time and place. And you've spoken about art and how it can be very healing and it's used as therapy as well. And you see a lot of children thrive in art that they don't thrive in other subjects. And you've spoken about all the different types of intelligences and the fact that we need to understand our own personal emotions and when we have understood them or neuroplastically changed them for the better. <laughs> and then we have the interpersonal relationships which can help us build strong bonds through the course of our life, hopefully in business, in marriages, in families, whatever, with our friends, etc, etc. But not all of these skills are present in our educational systems. So just to kind of conclude, if you had one kind of wish for the education systems going forward, what what would it be? George Bush put uh, something into law in the States called No Child Left Behind. And it's really looking at each child individually and being sure that everybody gets what they need. And I think that that's so important is that you can't just look at a class of kids or an age group of kids or a curriculum. You need to just really look at each student individually. And I think that giving everybody personalized instruction, at least in the smallest of way, goes a long, a, a long way in the, in the long run for each child's development. That's a, a lovely thought. Emma, thank you. Linda, what would you like to see? As as you've got two days left, I think you said two days. <laughs> two days. I, I finish on Tuesday. I'm not... What a bizarre day to finish on. I mean, it, Well, it's the 31st of January. It's the end of the month. Yes, but it's not the end of the school year. No. no, no. Even, even, if you reach, even if you reach retirement age on your birthday and you're right in the middle, 
of giving, that makes no gi- sense giving at all. S five exams. That's it. I know. I That's have, not okay. It's not. Ah! A, it's it's not okay. Actually, <laughs> that's terrible. So my wish would be actually. Um, I I think Luxembourg is a wonderful little country that is a powerhouse in many ways. There's a however coming. But <laughs> I use but. But it's interesting that the three of us here that you are chatting with, you have an interest and a special speciality in gifted children, which don't come just gifted, but also come, come come with these difficulties. Of it's course. it's almost like a price you pay for being gifted. I've had a, a, a lot of experience as an art teacher and, and love the art and, and passionate about what art can do for you as a person, not just as a child, but as a hum- as, as an adult. Um, people who have had trauma turn to art. Surgeons, brain surgeons, I know, do painting just to get rid of stress. Um, you are a specialist in psychology and intelligence. There are three of us in this room. If the Ministry of Education would wake up and say, hey, why don't we produce a special unit that actually helps children using art, using creative intelligence, using these special skills that you have for gifted children to help these children? Because actually there are a lot out there. Yeah, There are an enormous number of children who are struggling. Well, I think we see that with mental health issues, uh, yes. particularly through secondary school, but not just secondary school. It, it yes. presents in primary as well in different ways. You've been speaking about the exams in America. I, there's many exams in the UK as well, for example. But uh, yeah, a final thought from you, Lydia, and, and Sasha as well. We've got just a couple <laughs> of minutes left. So a quick final thought from you, Lydia, and Sasha to end the show. I would really like to see more social emotional intelligence programmes. And I really like what uh, Linda said. So bringing people people together from different uh, aspects and from different skills. Thank you, Lydia. And Sasha, the final word to you. Well, I'm also a big fan of Ken Robinson and um, he advocates for more dance. Oh, yes, doesn't he? Because he's got a fabulous dance. You know, young children have no self-consciousness and they Mm. want to move. And one of the worst things is in education from what I understand with small children is the fact that you have to sit in a chair and you know your chair will kill you we know that as adults so let alone don't make the children just sit in their chairs and learn 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 let them dance make them move that brings us back to Melissa Dalton's story of the week which is that Luxembourgers spend at least six to eight hours a day sitting in a chair 12 hours what 12 hours sedentary that's not sitting in a chair but yes a day um, 12 hours a day we we spend uh, sedentary and you know it, we need to move we're not made mm. to sit uh, it's it's terrible mm. for us as mm. yes as adults it was a very interesting interview actually on Melissa's show yes it is and just uh, we have a final minute and that brings me back to a conversation I had this week which was on um, diseases and the fact that we only started getting these diseases uh, infectious diseases like COVID etc when we started living sedentary lives in cities and we were together more in that way and we weren't moving around and so that created a whole batch of new diseases. So, oh, well, that's not a very happy note to end on. Let's end on a positive note. Go watch Ken Robinson and let's yeah, move around and, and listen to his fabulous story about, I think it was the choreographer who developed cats. Yes. Her, yes. So it's a really great story. So I'll, I'll put the links to those lovely talks and God bless him. He was a fabulous educator in all sorts of ways and just such a humble man so thank you all thank you Lydia Linda thank you Emma for joining our show just spontaneously and Sasha as always thank you so much thank you thank you
The Lisa Burke Show.